0: You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected with our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge and our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message. We would love to hear from you. I sent out a text to you guys who are on our information uh, thread just about preparing our hearts for the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And one of our own, who's a, who is very well connected to missionaries down in the country of Peru, uh, who wasn't able to be here today, but he told me about what just happened to some missionaries in the country of Peru, which isn't generally known as, um, as a place where there's too much threat. However, uh, he said this, that there's a, the mission... Um, Missionary family that he's associated with knows of a couple, Bob and Becky Bass. They serve in Peru. They have a five-year-old son named Colton. Uh, They are working to try to free sex-trafficked girls. So a very worthy and good cause in Peru and also share the gospel and plant churches and all those other things. Becky, the wife, had uh, contracted COVID. It got really serious. She was out for a couple of weeks But then she was recovering. And so uh, the father, Bob, and the son, Colton, went out to the park and let, obviously, Becky stay at home. She was still weak from recovering from COVID. When they got back, they found that their house was broken into, robbed, and Becky, the wife, had been murdered just this past week. So this missions family now has to go travel to... This single dad. Try to comfort them. What do you do with that kind of thing, right? You know, sometimes I get frustrated. I've been frustrated sometimes in seasons of Restoration Church where I'm like, God, throw me a bone here. Like, I'm trying my best. I think I'm doing the right thing. I think I'm doing righteous work before you. And then you've got people like this who are doing the right thing. They're trying to free people who are stuck in slavery. There's nothing that you could actually approach them and say, well, you could have done this differently. I mean, this is a righteous thing that they're doing, and yet they're experiencing intense suffering and persecution in the country that they're in. You know, one in eight Christians are persecuted, and Jared, who's going to come up uh, in a second, he works for Open Doors, and... They've got some stats. I'd encourage you to visit their website and just see some of the things that are going on throughout, throughout the world, which we are going to focus on some specific countries today. One in eight Christians are persecuted. And as I got ready for church this morning and got really frustrated because I forgot the key to my office, I checked myself because one in eight people... Like, it's not a given for them just to come to church and set up like we did. We set up chairs, and Danny was here to greet us at Tapestry Hall, and everything went really well, and Emma led Emma and the, and the girls here led so well this morning. And, and I was worried about, I forgot a couple of tablets in my office. That was my biggest worry this morning. Oh no, Emma needs the music tablets, and I forgot my key. That was my biggest worry. But one in eight Christians, their worry, their stress is... Am I going to be caught? Am I going to be in trouble? Am I going to be, is there going to be acts of violence committed against me for simply going to church? It's a whole different ballgame. And I think it's important for us to recognize that this is a reality for one in eight Christians today. Not just through history, but today as we get up for Sunday mornings. I think it's really important that we pray for and recognize and learn from maybe more than anyone else, it's, we've typically in history in North America been like, let's go teach the world how we do Christianity. I think it's definitely time for us to take a look at the mirror and be like, the world needs to teach us how to do Christianity. Can someone say amen? Like, it's, not any, it's not the day anymore where it's like, we as North Americans need to teach the rest of the world how to do Christianity. We need to look at those who are persecuted that actually risk their lives to be at church, to, to fellowship with other believers, to preach the name of Jesus. It's time we looked at the world and said, what can we learn from you? Those who have unshakable faith. It's just kind of the theme of today. I just briefly want to take a look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse... 13. Look at verse, chapter 3, verse 13, if you got a Bible, just really quickly. I'm just going to read a couple verses. It says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? In 14 it says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, so even if you should suffer for doing the right thing, you'll be blessed. This is not going to be a full sermon. I'm not going to be able to dissect everything that's going on in this passage, but just a couple things I wanted to bring out and how we learn what does is, what is unshakable faith look like. The question that's posed at the beginning is, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? And we, we often say the same thing, right? We ask the same question. If, I'm going to do, if I do the right thing, then what can go wrong? What suffering am I going to experience if I'm trying to do the right thing? Any perfectionists in the room without actually raising your hand? The perfectionist mentality is if I check off all the di- like if I get everything exactly the way that it's supposed to be, then nothing could go wrong. I'm sparing myself from any sort of suffering or error. We think that all the time. We, we translate that into the will of God even. You know, if I'm doing all the right things and I make all the right decisions, then I'll be able to avoid the adverse effects of life. Even preachers are telling their churches that this morning. In like comfy Canadian church, preachers are telling the church, if you do all the right things, you'll avoid all the adverse effects of life. That's not true. The question is, who can harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But the answer is, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, the intention is that there is suffering that exists in this life for you doing the thing that you're actually supposed to do. And the persecuted church reminds us that suffering is often experienced not because we're doing the wrong thing or we're somehow out of the will of God or it's like, what could I have done differently to experience this suffering? But often suffering is experienced precisely because we're exactly where we're supposed to be and doing exactly what we're supposed to be doing and precisely within the will of God in our life. Suffering does not mean you're doing something wrong. It actually could mean you're doing something right. If you suffer for righteousness' sake. It says that you'll be blessed if you do this. Blessed is just a way of saying that you'll be granted favor. You'll have a favorable outcome. And It seems weird because we just said that if you do the right thing, sometimes you're going to suffer for it. And it says you'll be be blessed, you'll have favor bestowed upon you if you suffer for righteousness' sake. Reminds me of Jesus said something very similar in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount as he began this amazing sermon. He said, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I think what Jesus is getting at in the context of the Sermon on the Mount that can be translated here in 1 Peter 3, that... When you suffer for doing the right thing. Not for doing the wrong thing, but for doing the right thing and actually following God. And whatever that might be, whether that's to actually preach the name of Jesus, live out the way of Jesus, whatever that might look like, and you're suffering for it. What I think Jesus is getting at, says you will be blessed, is that you are living a life so radically for the kingdom of heaven, another kingdom than this one, that it's incompatible with the way of this kingdom and you're living in the favor of God, maybe not in this world, maybe not in the favor of anyone else around you, but at least you're living in the favor of God. We could say more, but quickly. What does unshakable faith look like, and what do we need to encourage ourselves, and what do we need to pray for for the church around the world to continue to have this unshakable faith? Two things in the passage. First one is really simple. Have no fear of them. That's what we need to pray. You know when we pray where it's like, we sometimes say to God, you know, I pray that they wouldn't suffer. That's the reality. And suffering doesn't mean that they're actually doing something wrong, as we've already explained. I think more so what we need to pray is in their suffering, God, give them courage. Not take away their suffering, because that's just a reality, And it could be that suffering that actually makes their faith unshakable, which we'll get into in a second. But I think what we need to pray for today is within, in the midst of their suffering, God, give that church courage that they wouldn't fear and be led astray by their fear. It seems trite, right? When I explain the missionary family that goes to the park only to come back and finds his wife is is murdered, to say have no fear of that, that seems trite. If that ever happened to me, I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm going to be afraid of that. But what I believe it's getting at is this. If you follow the Enneagram, okay, some of you are going to groan. Some of you are going to be like, yes, I'm all into the Enneagram. One point they do have that, that's really fascinating. I'm a three, by the way, just in case anyone wants to know. I didn't even need to take the test. I read it over. I was like, yeah, that's definitely me. Uh, Your fear is your motivation. Right? Am I right on that? Enneagram, people who know the Enneagram or any sort of personality thing, the things that you fear are the things that you're motivated by. So that's why it says have no fear of them because the fear that you have is the thing that's going to motivate you in your faith. For instance, let's say this morning, It's going to be a heavy morning, so there's not going to be any bright, cheery illustrations. Let's say you're addicted to pornography, which I'm assuming many people are in this room. If stats are true. If you're addicted to pornography and your fear is getting exposed or being caught versus hurting your family, causing... Uh, uh, relational strife in your family, what's your motivation? One is, I don't want to touch it. I don't want to hurt my family. One is, the other one is, how do I keep doing this without getting caught if my fear is just getting caught? Do you understand what I'm saying? The thing that you fear is what you're actually motivated by. And here when it says, have no fear of them, what we're praying for when we say, God, give them courage, have them have faith, let, let them have faith that is unshakable no matter what they're going through, it's that they, would, that they would fear rejection of God more than they would fear rejection of the world. Let me say that again. What we're praying for is that they would fear rejection of God or a broken relationship with God more than they would fear rejection of the world if they begin to fear rejection of the world more, that's what's going to motivate them. And their faith now is shaky. So we need to pray for that and for ourselves. Secondly, I gotta end. Secondly, have no fear of them nor be troubled. Here's the second part. In your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord as holy. Honor Christ. It just means to revere or make him holy. It's placing him at the uttermost importance in your life. See, suffering allows us to see what's actually important to us. For The difficulty for us who don't suffer in our faith is we don't really know if it's that important to us or not until we actually suffer for it. Do Do you understand what I'm saying? Like you don't know if something's important to you until there's actual like, adversity in that thing. You, know, you don't know if your marriage is that important to you until there's actual adversity that you now have to work for it. You don't know if your job is that important to you until there's actual adversity, you've got to work for it. The same thing with your faith. You don't know if it's that important to you until you experience adversity in it And so you actually, now it's tested. And we learn what our faith is, or on the other side, isn't in suffering. In verse 15, it says, always being ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason uh, of the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, you know, that's often being used in the context of academia or apologetics, and rightly so. I mean, it's a great passage to use in academia or apologetics, and knowing all of the arguments, and if you read, uh, who's the guy who re- writes all the reasonable faith stuff? This is the verse that they use often. What's his name? Lane. Thank you, William Lane Craig. So all of that kind of that kind of camp of people. However, the specific context isn't in some academia-type world. It's told to Christians as a way to respond to those who are mistreating you. It's not to have all the right answers. Here's, here's class. this is classic. Here's argument one, therefore argument, or here's argument one and argument two, therefore argument three. Boom, I've won the argument. This is used in the context of how, when, when people mistreat me for my faith, how do I respond to them? Remember, I said suffering allows you to see for yourself what's actually important to you. It also allows the world, when they persecute you, to see what's actually important to you as well, to see the hope that actually exists inside of you. You know, because we're maligned, it doesn't give us permission to do the same. Because we're maligned by the world maybe or the persecuted church is maligned by the world it doesn't give us permission to treat the world the same way. But if Jesus is of utmost importance to us if we revere him then we need to respond in the same way. It actually opens us up not closes us off to the world. It shows the world our hope. Now I'm convinced of this. It ends off with verse 18, for Christ also suffered. I love that. It's not just you Christians, this is what you go through. Christ also suffered once for sins. He suffered right for right, doing righteous things, but for the unrighteous people, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I'm convinced of this. It wasn't in the big crowds that Jesus shows his desire, what he wants, what was important to him the clearest. It was in his suffering. It was when he was nailed to a cross that that showed clearest what was actually important to him because there was a cost attached to it. Guys, our response to mistreatment and to persecution as a church is the clearest way of showing a different sort of hope that no one else lives by. Because Christ also suffered for us. Open Doors had a story, of. of, I'll close with this, of a man named Marcelo. Jared might know this because it's on their website. Uh, Marcelo, who is an Argentine pastor and missionary. I'm just going to read it because I can't really put it in any better way. Listen to this. Marcelo Coronel is an Argentine pastor and missionary who lives and works in Venezuela. Despite many obstacles of living in Venezuela, Marcelo saw his calling there, to the point of becoming a Venezuelan citizen in 2011 so that he could continue working in the country. In October 2018, so seven years later, the police brought Marcelo to a police waiting room and kept him there for a full day. Eventually, they told him that he was being detained and accused of five crimes treason to the country, terrorism, exploitation of a state property, association to commit a crime, and illicit exploitation. For the first four crimes, he was to serve a sentence of 12 to 18 years in prison, and the last one, four years. The police alleged that when questioned, the girl said that the medicines belonged to the church, and since the pastor was the first call she made, they blamed him for the crime. Despite a lack of evidence from the authorities, Marcelo remained in prison with no prospect of getting out. In a small cell, sometimes with 20 to 33 other prisoners, life was completely subhuman. During the time I was there, we had to urinate in plastic bottles and do our physiological needs in the cell. They let us go to the bathroom only once a day for five minutes to use the bathroom. This is a quote from him. For five minutes to use the bathroom and shower. We ate from bags without cutlery. According to them, it was for our safety. Visits were only allowed by a family member and for five minutes where we couldn't even touch or kiss, just say hello, listen, and often just cry. How do you respond to that? What do you pray for? I mean, he's in jail. I mean, we can pray that he'd be released. But God, give Marcelo courage and let Christ be the thing that he reveres most in life. This is what it says. The various difficulties did not shake Marcelo. Slowly, he began to gain confidence from the prisoners and to preach to them. His bed and blanket, which used to be his resting place, became where he listened, prayed, and advised everyone. He said this, I preached to them every night for almost half an hour. Everything was silent so that the message of the Bible could be heard. I didn't have a Bible, but that didn't matter. I told the stories and the Bible anecdotes with reflections, which is a huge cause for just learning the Bible and learning the stories of the Bible, and everyone liked it. We also sang hymns and praises that were heard by everyone. What started in his cell grew to much larger proportions, reaching into nearby cells and into the women's wing of the prison. After two months since his arrest, Marcelo still didn't have a date for his release, Everyone knew of his innocence, even the investigator in charge of the case, who apologized for him, to him for everything he put him through. The investigator said, Pastor, I want to apologize for everything I've put you through. It's my fault you're here, and I realize the value of the person that you are. You're a true sir, a true pastor. One night in December, Marcelo was visited by diplomatic rep- representatives from Argentina with a proposal. He would leave in a week if he renounced his Venezuelan nationality and returned to Argentina. Marcello then put everything in balance, prayed, and replied that he would continue to wait for the process, despite knowing that he could be imprisoned for 18 years. But he was convinced that God would judge him, and that God would have the last word. This decision kept him detained, but there he kept his faith unshakable, and continued preaching in prison. In the months that followed, I baptized, this is what he said, I baptized two people, prayed and established three other pastors, one for each cell. In the morning, we had a time of study. That's that's insane. In the morning, we had a time of study and prayer, and in the evening, we preached the word. And the good news came seven months after his arrest, 210 days, when he was released, despite being accused of illicit use of drugs as a way to justify the time he spent in prison. Marcelo feels that he made the best use of his time while there. He said this in closing. I left with the satisfaction of not failing to preach and glorify the name of Christ and that many know the love of God and above all understand that even the bad things that we experience is for our own good. That's what unshakable faith looks like. Boy, do we need to pray for the same. And maybe in smaller ways, yes. And maybe... You'll never spend 210 days in prison because of your faith. But in smaller ways, we need to pray for unshakable faith here in Canada. And how do we learn from the church that displays such faith around the world? God, thank you so much for people like Marcelo, Bob and Becky Bass, and the thousands around the world that are experiencing hardship and adversity, Lord, they shine their faith all the more because of it. They show a faith that remains unshakable in, in such persecution. God, may we learn from these, these believers. May the church here wake up. May we not become selfish May we not cry for the good old days of the past. Lord, may we have hope for what you're going to do in the future, no matter what happens. That we would respond to a world with gentleness, respect, that would shine our hope all the clearer. Yeah. Pray for all these things in your name.